Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's return to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 10, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. The title of the message this morning is The Supreme Source of Christian Joy. When we talk about joy or rejoicing, those two words mean virtually the same thing. The difference is that joy is how we feel about something. It's an emotion that is elicited through circumstance. Rejoicing is the expression of that feeling. So if you feel joy, you might rejoice through laughter or clapping or even tears. So joy is a noun, rejoice a verb. The the concept of joy is something that you've probably spent some time on if you've ever studied the book of Philippians in the New Testament. The book of Philippians is sometimes called the epistle of joy because 15 times in a very short letter the Apostle Paul uses the word joy or some variation of it. And in chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul does something I think very surprising. He commands Christians to have joy, or at least to express it. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. As if we wouldn't believe it the first time, he says it twice. He says, now now I say that this is surprising because we often think of joy, which is a feeling and emotion. We think of feelings and emotions as something that happens spontaneously. That is, they can't be commanded. You either have it or you don't. You're either happy, scared, or sad, depending on the circumstance, but it's not something that can be commanded. Well, a little later on in that book of Philippians, Paul relates his command to rejoice with thankfulness. So as we dwell as Christians on the Lord's goodness and on His benefits, we'll certainly rejoice. But there's more. Paul declares that joy is really the natural product of a life that has been transformed by Christ. It's what he calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. And here in our text this morning, Jesus has sent out 70 disciples in pairs to go into the villages of Judea to prepare the way for His visiting them. Remember that He had granted to these 70 men power to perform miracles and authority to speak in His name. And here in verse 17, they are returning from their mission to give a report of how it went. And so let's read now, beginning in verse 17 of Luke 10. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. 
turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. May the Lord add his blessing the reading and hearing of his word. Now these 70 men came back to Jesus rejoicing. They were feeling joy, and so in some visible way they were expressing that joy. They might have been skipping. They might have been smiling and laughing and clapping. It certainly was evident from a distance that they had joy. And what the scripture says they were happy about is that God had accomplished through them some amazing things. He said, even the demons are subject to us. Well, Jesus used their joy to teach them some very important spiritual truths. Now, the first thing he does is he gives them some good and valid reasons for Christians to have joy. And then he gives them the ultimate reason, which is our focus today, the supreme reason that Christians are to have joy. And finally, he lets them in on what gives him the greatest joy. So let's start with some good reasons for Christian joy. Now think about the times in your life where you were the happiest. If you're married, you better say your wedding day, okay? If you have children, you better say the day your, your children were born. Th those are givens, okay? But think of some other times in your life. If you're a Christian, certainly the the day you were saved, the day when uh, the Lord opened your eyes and you asked Him to forgive your sin, and He did. I, I wrote down literally on a piece of paper this week that the days in my life I was happiest, and I'm embarrassed to say that uh, two of the top ten were football games. <laughs> Near the top was when uh, my alma mater beat Alabama. That was a great day. So sometimes the things that make us happy uh, really don't have a lot of meaning. But why were these 70 men rejoicing? Because even the demons, they said, were subject to us in Jesus' name. Now earlier here in the Gospel of Luke, some of Jesus' disciples had tried everything they knew to cast out this particular demon to no effect. Jesus came on the scene, he rebuked them for their lack of faith, and then he cast out the demon. Now here they are. There's not a demon that can stand up against the authority that they're wielding. They're full of joy because of this, because they've successfully done what they couldn't do before. And they must have been feeling 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And so Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't rebuke them for being joyous. In fact, he joins them in rejoicing. He says something, though, that stumps us. He says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. See, what Jesus knows is that in this world we have an enemy. His name is Satan. Satan is Christ's enemy, therefore he is our enemy. He is a usurper and a liar. Jesus calls him the father of all lies. The Old Testament says that Satan was cast out of heaven for sinful pride. He was originally an angel and took a third of the angels with him when he fell. And they are, I believe, demon spirits. And Satan and his demons seek to stop God's plan of redemption and Jesus said, Behold, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And this, I believe, refers to Jesus' pre-incarnate existence in heaven. You know that uh, the second person of the Trinity has always existed. He was the agency by, by which the world was created. In the beginning was the Word, the Scripture says. He has always exercised authority over Satan, and he always will. And each and every time I take it, one of these disciples cast out a demon, 
Jesus saw that as a reinforcement of the truth that he had authority over Satan who was cast out. Were you awake last night when the lightning was flashing and the thunder was going on? Every time I'm in a thunderstorm I'm reminded I'm not in charge of anything. The Lord is. And how quickly that lightning falls. That's how quickly Satan was cast out of heaven. So many in our culture have the idea that God and Satan are equally powerful. And they're duking it out in the cosmos. And we'll have to wait to see who wins in the end. We don't have to wait. We already know. Satan is a defeated foe, isn't he? Now he's a defeated foe, but he's fighting a very effective guerrilla campaign. He is, the scripture says, the God of this age. He has give, been given by the Lord's sovereignty some authority in this realm. But one day even that is going to come to an end. The ultimate defeat of Satan, of course, came at the cross. Where defeat, Jesus uh, paid for our sins and three days later was resurrected. And so Christians no longer have to fear Satan's greatest weapon, which is the fear of death. We don't even have to fear that. Not even death, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so, what Jesus is affirming is that not only does he still have authority over Satan, he has granted that authority to us. Christians today don't have to fear Satan nor his demons. Look what he says in verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, unfortunately, some well-meaning, I think, Christians have taken this very literally. And so they play with dangerous animals like scorpions and snakes, and they claim this verse that uh, nothing can harm them. But obviously, in the context, this is a metaphor. Jesus is comparing Satan and his demons to scorpions and serpents, those things that strike fear in the heart of men. In the book of Genesis, Satan takes the form of a serpent. In the book of Revelation, he's described as the dragon. So, so I take these scorpions and serpents that we have authority over to be demonic forces under the authority of Satan. The point is that Christians don't have to fear Satan and demons. The Bible just says it very simply like this. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. We're not told to attack Satan. We're not told to go on the offensive against Satan. We're not told to bind Satan. We're told to resist Satan. We are nearing one of my least favorite holidays of the year. Halloween. And I'm amazed of what my neighbors on my street will spend Saw them out yesterday spending hours of their valuable time on the weekend and some of the many hundreds of dollars to decorate their homes with scorpions and serpents and all sorts of creatures designed to elicit fear. Well, we can laugh that off as good fun and silliness, but the truth is that Satan is not a cartoon figure. He is very real. And demons are real. But as believers, we don't have to fear him because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Jesus says this is a reason to rejoice. He's validating their joy. He's not rebuking it. He's saying you're right to rejoice that the demons have to submit to you in my name. But he's quick to add that is not the best reason to rejoice. Let's read on verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this 
That is in that alone that the demons have been cast out, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That is the supreme reason for Christian joy, that our names are recorded in heaven. He's speaking here very simply of our salvation. I said in last week's message that the message is more important than the miracle. Here's another example of this truth. I think chapter 10 of Luke is a death blow to the charismatic movement, which seeks signs and wonders and never satisfied with the simple, clear teaching of the word. The miracles are subordinate to the message. The message is Jesus died for sinners. And here's another example of that. These guys were fired up. They were enthusiastic because they had been given power over demons. Praise the Lord. I take that to mean that they could cast them out and, and they gave relief to poor, oppressed people. That's always a good thing. But Jesus says, in effect, that's great, that's wonderful, but that's not the most important thing. What is the most important thing is that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, what in the world does it mean that their names are recorded in heaven? Is this some super set of especially blessed Christians? The Apostle Paul, again in the book of Philippians, when he was talking about his fellow laborers there at Philippi, said, your names are written in the book of life. Now, I don't think it's some super set of Christians. I think it's just a Christian. There are between eight and ten references to this book of life in the New Testament, depending on how you count them. But, but those whose names are written in the book of life are simply those who belong to Christ. They are His. In fact, several times in the book of Revelation, this book of life is referred to by its owner. This is the Lamb who was slain's book. And we call it the Lamb's book of life. And here's what uh, that tells us. It tells us that we don't have to fear losing our salvation. Amen. One of the greatest truths of Christianity, biblical Christianity, and certainly of our Baptist faith, is the doctrine of eternal security. That once we are saved, we can never lose our salvation. But where does that doctrine come from? Is that just something we tell ourselves to soothe ourselves when we're in sin? No, it's from Revelation 20:15 when Jesus described those whose name is written in the book of life. He says, I will not, I will not blot their names out. I will never erase their names from the book of life. That is there, there in indelible ink, I remember preachers saying in a day gone by. That is true. He will never blot us out. Now, the other side of that is if your name is not found in the book of life, the book of Revelation says you'll be cast into the lake of fire. On the day of judgment, that, that's how things are going to play out. Now, the books are going to be open, the scripture says. The books, plural, being the deeds that we did on earth. But then he says the book of life is open, one book. And if your name is in it, you spend eternity with heaven, in heaven with the Lord. If your name's not in it, you're, you're cast into the lake of fire. That's what he's saying to these men. Look, it's great that you have authority here on earth to cast out demons. But the ultimate source of joy for every believer is their eternal security in Jesus. Unless you think that is a new notion, it's not. It's an Old Testament notion as well. Most of you have memorized at some point in your life the 23rd Psalm. 
where King David reflects upon his childhood of being a shepherd boy and he takes pen to ink and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he describes the Lord's provision, how he led him into green pastures beside still waters, protected him with his rod and his staff, anointed his head with oil, protected him from his enemies. Then he comes to the end of his thought there in verse six of Psalm 23 and he says this, surely, which means manifestly, obviously, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That is as long as I'm living, the Lord's goodness and mercy are with me, comma, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, how long? Forever. David's understanding was his eternal security. His name was written in heaven. What a great source of joy. Friends, no matter what happens to you in this life, whether you have health or not, whether you have wealth or not, whether people like you or not, if your name is written in heaven, you should rejoice. Jesus says that is the ultimate source of Christian joy. But then thirdly, Jesus lets us in on something wonderful. That is the ultimate source of his joy. Look at verse 21. At the very time, that is after he had told them about the source of their ultimate joy, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now just look at that first sentence for a second. Remember, joy is how we feel. Rejoicing is how we express that feeling. Now how do you express joy? Usually we smile, maybe even laugh. I've known people that clap, whistle, <laughs> that, that shake their hands like this, that they're going to do something to express what they're feeling inside. Do you know what Jesus did when he rejoiced? He prayed to the Father. What a wonderful reflex response to joy is to praise the Lord. At that very time, thinking about the fact that these men's names were written in heaven, he rejoiced greatly. Not just a little bit. He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Did you catch it? Did you see and hear from that verse what the greatest source of joy in the life of Jesus is? It's pleasing his heavenly Father. He says, yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. What pleased the Father? Well, he told us. The unfolding of his eternal plan of redemption. Jesus here prayerfully praises the Father for his plan. And he addresses him very specifically as Father. Did you note that? Which expresses his equality with God. Unless you think, well, maybe he's not saying he's equal with God. He is. Because later on in the Gospels, it says when Jesus addressed God as Father... They sought to kill him because he made himself equal with God. The religious leaders knew what he meant when he addressed God as Father. And then he called him Lord of heaven and earth. That's right, theologically, isn't it? What's our memory verse last month? Our God sits in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. 
He's the God of heaven and earth, that is of all realms. And Jesus knows what pleases the Father was to save a group of people from out of a sinful, hell-bound world through the death, burial, and resurrection of His dear Son. And it further pleased God that He would get all the glory for it. You do remember that God does everything He ultimately does for His own glory, including saving your soul, including writing your name in the book of life. What Jesus is saying when he says, I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Jesus knows that if salvation could be discerned from intellect, if it could be achieved through works righteousness, or even if it could be bought, then man would get the glory. If salvation could be figured out through intellect, we would form a committee of Nobel Prize winning scientists. And when they figured it out, we'd name it after them. And if it could be earned through doing good deeds, we'd find the 10 most selfless, altruistic people we could find and say, show us the way. And then we'd praise them. And if it could be bought, we'd accumulate the billionaires of the world and say, have at it. And they certainly would take credit. But the truth is that this plan cannot be discerned by intellect. It cannot be won through works righteousness. And it can't be bought or sold. It pleased the Father to hide this truth of salvation, this plan of redemption from the wise and intelligent and reveal them to the simple and humble like these 70 disciples. And friends, let's be honest, like us. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? Not many wise, not many noble. Now, does that mean that an intelligent person can't be saved? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Here's what it means. It means that no one will be saved by or because of their intelligence. Does it mean that a wealthy person can't be saved? No. But it will be very difficult. Jesus made that clear, didn't he, when he said it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because a rich man tends to depend on his riches. And to be saved, Jesus says, you have to come to him on his terms. And I often tell you like this, with empty pockets and outturned hands, nothing to offer. See, a rich man's tendency when he's in a bind is to negotiate with his wealth. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be congratulated is the man or woman who gets to the place in their spiritual journey that they know they don't have anything to offer God. They come as a pauper and a beggar pleading with him for mercy. They're not negotiating. That's why Jesus says, not many wealthy, not many wise. Some, but not many. And so he says to these men, that God has revealed these truths to you. And he called them infants. He's not insulting them. He was just reflecting how the world thought of them. These people who are in leadership, these intellectually elite, the wealthy, the noble, they look down on the common people of society and as intellectual and economic lightweights. They're infants. But here's the thing about an infant. An infant is humble. That I think is why Jesus says... 
unless all of us come as a little child. None of us will be saved. You, you take a toddler and, and you hold up a blanket in front of him and you pull it down and he's shocked that you're still there. And you put it back up and you're gone. Just disappeared from the planet. And you pull it down and he's shocked that you're still there. And you can do that all day. And he's going to have the same reaction every time. Every time you put it up and brought it down, it was brand new to them. They weren't leaning on their intellect. They weren't doing complex algebraic calculations to see what was going on there. They were just accepting it as truth. Well, that's what Jesus says of these men. He, he, he was praising God that he opened their eyes to this blessed truth. What a blessing to be called by God to understand the gospel. And friends, that should give us joy. Look what he says now in verse 23. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Jesus is telling him, look, you, you guys have an incredible privilege and honor living when you do. I, I want to confess something to you. I, I've been watching way too much news lately. And if I'm not careful, that will affect my mood. And, and I just had to turn it off last week. It just got to be too much. And, and here's what I find myself doing as I watch the direction of the country and have been now for many years. I began wishing for a, a different time. And, and the truth is when we're that nostalgic, we're probably not remembering it all like it really was. Do you ever find yourself wishing for a simpler time? time where you didn't have all these cares and it, it looked like at least on the surface that there was a hint of morality left. A little bit of shame over sin left in the culture. But that, that seems to, to be gone. And, and, I, and I find myself, oh, I wish I'd been born in a different time. And I think probably every generation has felt that from, from time to time. But here's what Jesus is saying to these men. You are living in the greatest time in human history. You get to see with your own eyes the fruition and the culmination and the completion of these Old Testament prophecies. Not even Jeremiah and Isaiah and even old Elijah got to live to see these things that they preached about hundreds of years ago. But, but, but you do. And so friends, I have to remind myself, we also live in a great time to be alive. We have the full canon of Scripture. We have everything that God ever intended human beings to know about Himself in one book. And we have the freedom to worship according to the dictates of our conscience. And we live in a country where we can still do that without fear of arrest or, or seizure. Friends, that ought to give us joy. We live in a time where the gospel... The plan of redemption is crystal clear. And you know what that plan is. Before the foundation of the earth, the secret counsel of the Most High, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit determined to bring glory to themselves by redeeming a group of people known as the church out of 
bondage to sin. At just the right moment, God sent forth his son into the world at his incarnation. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfectly righteous, sinless life, tempted in every way we are. Christ went to the cross. He was beaten and bruised and bloodied in his passion. He was led to the cross where his hands and feet were nailed to those wooden planks at his crucifixion where he literally died. He was taken down from that cross and laid in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he arose in his resurrection, victorious over death in the grave. For 40 days, he taught and was witnessed to by hundreds of people. He went to the Mount of Olives where he ascended in their presence back to the Father at his ascension. The scripture says he's seated at the right hand of the Father at his session, ever making intercession for us. And one day the scripture says the trumpet will sound and Christ will return for his church. The dead will rise and all that remain will be caught up together with the Lord. Does that bring you joy? Even in the midst of political chaos, even in the midst of friends with cancer, even in the midst of, for many of you, problems in your family, maybe economic trouble. We have joy because of that wonderful truth, but there's lots of things to thank the Lord for. Lots of things to be happy about. We have a wonderful church, don't we? We have wonderful friends here. Many of us have wonderful spouses. God has blessed many of us with beautiful children. But the supreme source of Christian joy today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. It's the steadfast assurance that our name is written in heaven. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. May that give you joy today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that it has brought me joy time and time again as I am tempted to be downtrodden and defeated because of the seeming direction of the nation. Lord, I'm reminded that you're sovereign, that all of this is temporary. We are strangers and aliens passing through, that one day Jesus is going to return and he is going to make right everything that was made wrong when sin entered the world. One day soon we're going to be free not only of the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, we're going to be free from the very presence of sin. And Father, your eternal plan is right on schedule. Father, I pray that you'd give joy to some here today that lack it. I pray you'd remind them of your sovereignty. I pray that you would remind them in their times of sorrow that uh, their name is written in heaven, which is the ultimate source of joy. But yeah, Lord, we're warned. There are a lot of people with a smile on their face and who laugh a lot, who really have no reason to because their name is not written in heaven. They've never bowed the knee to your Lordship. And Father, I pray if there'd even be one lost soul here today that you would uh, convict them by your spirit of their need of a savior. Father, that they'd have a sober moment where they would think about their own standing with you. And Father, if, if they're honest, they know they're found lacking. They, like all of us, are, are sinful 
and one day will stand before you to give an account of their lives. And, and Lord, I pray that today you would grant repentance and faith to even one. And Father, if that happens, we will rejoice, even as the angels in heaven rejoice after one lost soul who comes to faith. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.